Welcome. Here at Waterstone, we focus on living and loving like Jesus. In practice, this means that we connect with one another, engage in justice, and serve others sacrificially. We are so glad that you're here and invite you to join us in person. If you're able to attend weekend services, we gather on Saturday at 5.30 and Sunday at 9 and 10.30. Well, good morning. Uh, welcome. If you're online, uh, we're glad that you're here. My name is Elliot. I'm one of the pastors at Waterstone. I get to oversee our students and our um, Saturday night service. So we're glad that you're with us. We just wrapped up a series, if you've been with us, on Genesis, looking at uh, some of the more gritty stories in Scripture and how they relate to our lives. And sadly or comically, uh, they relate oftentimes very easily to our lives. And now we're going to begin over the next three Sundays, including this one, looking at the life of Jesus leading up to Easter on April 17th. And so, uh, welcome. We're glad that you're here. Uh, That's kind of where we are in our church calendar. I want to begin, though, by saying, uh, if you're a student of culture, of history, there's a good chance that you as well recognize that there is some degree of a crisis going on currently in Christianity. Not this week or this year, but on a bigger, larger scale. And it's not over one central issue, like you might think abortion or the sexual minorities uh, and their rights, the lesbian, gay, bisexual community, or uh, gender and how we define, or or, or the economy, or Ukraine, or the environment, or blue versus red states. It's larger than any of that. And I think it's an existential question. It's ultimately a question about our identity, who we are as Christians. The question I would say that we are wrestling with right now is what does it look like to live and love like Jesus. In 2017, uh, the Washington Post uh, published an article with this photo on the cover. The article was titled, Colin Kaepernick and Tim Tebow, a tale of two Christians on their knees. And the article expands on how there's a divide within Christianity today about what our faith really looks like in practice. Colin Kaepernick represents a faith-based activism, kneeling in protest to racism. Tim Tebow represents a personal piety, kneeling to represent a relationship, a personal relationship he has with God. And we as Christians are left asking the question, what does it really look like to live and love like Jesus? Before you think, well, I know, I hate the 49ers. I've never been a Kaepernick fan or, oh, I love Tebow, whatever it might be. I want to pause us and ask that we would take this question seriously and look at today's scripture humbly. Because I think if we really knew the answer to this question well, collectively as Christians, and that includes you, by the way, if you're in here and a Christian, then I don't think we'd be in this cultural moment that we are. Paul Jocelyn, our teaching pastor a few years ago, shared that um, 10 years ago, the vast majority of his friends were followers of Jesus. Today, the vast majority are not followers of Jesus. They don't identify as Christians. And that his friend group has not changed. Many of you resonate with this. We're familiar with the term deconstruction. Let me be uh, really clear about this as well. Deconstruction is a really uh, important part of our faith and how we grow. 
All of us, if we're growing in our faith, we're deconstructing theological paradigms and beliefs. We're questioning the things that we learned maybe in our households as children or culture or just picked up some way along the road on Instagram and asking what's more true and pure about the Christian faith and central to the person of Jesus. But what we're seeing is a deconstruction that's not reconstructing anything. Whether you have gray hair or you just got out of high school, it's a deconstruction that's walking away from the faith. So this morning I want to pause and I want to invite you again to ask this question. What does it look like, really, to live and to love like Jesus? I think John 13 is very clear about this. Gives us a really concrete answer. So if you would, let's look at it together. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and to go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Now this verse right here begins kind of the first bookend of a five-chapter section in John. Over the next five chapters from John 13 to John 17, we are going to read um, a contrast continually that John is setting up for you and I to see. See, they don't have, obviously, bold, italicized, and highlighted. So instead, they have to use repetition and other uh, grammatical tools to emphasize things for you and I to read. And the word world is used 40 times between 13 to 17. John 13 to 17. John sets this up when we ask the question, what does it look like to live and to love like Jesus? He sets it up by just saying, hey, heads up. There is a contrast. There's not a gradient. It's a contrast between the way those who Jesus loved, who were his own, and then the world live. So let's prepare for that contrast. And he continues in verse 2 through 4, and this is what it says. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. We read this and we think, well, Jesus was preparing to do what many of us have uh, read or heard, the foot washing. But John includes these details intentionally. You see, Jesus takes off his outer uh, garments, not because he just got a nice polo at the outlets in Castle Rock, and he doesn't want to get grime on it. It's going to be really hard to wash out. Jesus takes them off because he is dressing as a slave or servant would have in that day. Uh, it's not just weird because Jesus kind of has his underwear on when he's washing feet. That's the attire of a slave or a servant. Again, we're asking the question, and there's this big contrast that John's setting up. And then the next thing we see is Jesus putting on the clothes of a slave or servant. And it continues on in verse 5. It says this, after that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. So Jesus starts washing his feet. You see, as a modern and Western audience, we lose the shock. Uh, Peter, as we'll see in verse 6 in a moment, he asks the question, are you going to wash my feet? 
It's indignation. The Greek is clear. He's, he's shocked and he's angry. This isn't the way things are supposed to go. You know, in this day and age, a rabbi would never wash a student's feet. But just so you know, students would never wash each other's feet. In fact, if you came into my house in Jesus' day, I wouldn't have my wife or my children, who weren't viewed very highly children in that day, wash your feet. I wouldn't even just pick a random servant or slave to wash your feet. I would have the lowest servant on the totem pole wash your feet. That's what foot washing was. This moment is jarring to his disciples. They don't quite know what to do with it. Jesus' actions are self-sacrificial and they go in the face of the norm for his day and age and for ours. It, again, it, it's hard to really put this into modern context. It, it, I was thinking it's kind of like having um, Donald Trump or Joe Biden, pick your poison, I mean president, um, come into your house and clean your toilet. But instead of cleaning your toilet with a nice little scrub brush that you can drop off pressing a button into your trash can, they don't use gloves and they only have their hands. Now, some of you guys are like, I'm, I'm a Democrat, so I know who I choose to, choose, choose to clean my toilet. Or I'm a Republican, I know who I choose to clean my toilet. That's not the point. We're talking about foot washing church, okay? But this is the way things work. Um, if you've ever flown or you fly at DIA, this is uh, reminded and, and, and proved to us all the time. What happens when you show up at the airport, right? You've got basically the precious metal line and the scrap metal line. And if you're like me, you walk through and live life in the scrap metal line. Let me explain what I mean. You've got Delta Gold, right? You walk up, it's a really short, like, little uh, line. There's like four people waiting on you. They all are smiling. And then there's the basic economy, right? And you walk in the basic economy, and there's one disgruntled employee, and he's just ready to take your bags and throw it on the cart. And it's not just Delta Gold. It's United Premium. It's World Traveler. It's all that stuff. We separate by who's great and who's not. And then you go to TSA, and there's the long Disneyland line that doesn't end with a ride. It ends with someone basically frisking you, okay? But if you're in the precious metal line, the Delta Premium, the gold, whatever, platinum jewels, rubies, Southwest, then you get to go through clear and you're pre-checked and life is great. I think they slap you on the butt and say, good job. Thanks. And then you go to the airplane gate. And this is the best part to me. This is the part that really just boggles my mind. We're all going to the exact same place. And, and by the way, you won't leave without me. Like, I know that. If I'm standing here, you're going to say, hey, we need to get you on the plane. But still, for some reason, the precious metals line, the Delta Platinum, the United Gold, you get to board first. And then you get to sit in these big plushy seats and you get served a mimosa. It's 7.30 at night at a DIA. Who drinks mimosas at DIA at 7.30 at night? Precious metal people. That's right. And then instead, I walk back to the back of a Spirit Airlines, which feels less safe than a Greyhound at midnight. And I sit, I sit in a seat that was designed for a skinny fifth grader. <laughs> and you know what we learn in this? Do you know what we learn? We learn that if you are great, you will be served. And what Jesus is sharing and showing and modeling is that in his kingdom, you are made great. You are marked as great by who you serve and how you serve. 
not whether you are served. You want to know the craziest part of this? Is in Luke twenty two twenty four. You can look it up later. What we actually see is that the disciples in this moment at the Last Supper, they're arguing about who's greatest in the kingdom. That is the norm of our day and age as well. It was true then and it's true now. And Jesus says, not in my world. And if you're a follower of me, not in this world. Instead, we are called to be self-sacrificial. Jesus sacrifices his pride, his power, his influence to get down on a knee and wash the feet of his disciples. So for you and I today, what social norm can you break in the name of Jesus? What are the ways that you and I live in a, in a precious metals line and a scrap metal line? And that whenever we find ourselves in the precious metal line of life, we can get out and give someone our spot. What are the ways that we can self-sacrifice for the sake of others that are unprecedented? This is what the foot washing is. It's not just being nice. Anyone can be nice. The followers of Jesus are self-sacrificial. It's the reason why I think oftentimes you and I, if we are driving and we get off at Ken Carl, we see someone begging on the side of the road with a sign. It's often why I think we don't really get out of our car and go engage them. It's because there's a social norm that says, that's weird. Where am I going to park? There's gravel. What if I get hit? There's a million reasons to come up with why we wouldn't walk up to someone and say, hi, I'm Elliot. I actually carry around these food pantry cards for my church. It's up the street off Bowles. They're open on Thursdays. They'd love to help you out. And then we have pastors on staff who can connect you with resources in the area. Why don't we do that? I know that we all have a million reasons. There's a baby in the back. That's a legitimate reason. I'm in an emergency. I'm on the whatever. But not always. So what norms can you break? Even in your own household. Students, if you're in the room, are listening. It's a norm to not respect your parents when they're not around. To not honor them too often. What if you broke that norm? College students. It's a norm in our culture to say, hey, when I go away to college... I'm going to live my life and then I'll do what I'm supposed to do the rest of my life. What if you broke that norm and you served your future family well? If you're in a career, what if you broke the norm of griping or gossiping about a, a supervisor and instead you honored them? These are the subtle ways that we follow Jesus by being self-sacrificial. And Jesus continues on. So let's look at verse 6. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, this is indignation, shock, anger. Are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you don't realize what I'm doing right now. But later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then, Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. He's going all over it. Jesus answered, Those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean, and you are clean, though not every one of you. Look, Jesus is, is saying something theological here, just to be clear. It's almost like he's teaching an object lesson about foot washing and really concrete, and then he has an opportunity to say, Hey, 
I have cleaned some of you. I've forgiven your sins. But let's stay with the foot washing here. On that level, Jesus is meeting a very practical need. You see, there were no sewer systems in this day. There were no paved roads. When you walked, you walked on a dirt road, and the sewer system were the gullies that were hopefully cut on the left or the right of the road that you walked on. And when it rained and when it flooded, those gullies filled up and you walked in them. Imagine walking right now into a field after there's been a snow the night before. And it's 4 p.m., the sun was out all day. Gotta love Denver for that. And you think the field must be dry. You walk into the field and you get so far into it, there's no turning back now. And you realize it's soaking wet. It's like, honey, I shrunk the kids and you're standing on a sponge, okay? But you look down and a couple things. One, you're not wearing nice leather shoes that are closed-toed. You're wearing flip-flops, if you're lucky. And also you realize it's not just nice, clean, crisp Colorado snowmelt. It's actually water and also human waste and animal waste. That's the need they had. And Jesus is being practical to say, I will fill your need. If you want to wash the feet of others, need is important. It also means we have to distinguish between needs and us being mistreated or someone's desire that they want to use us for. In verse 10, Peter says he gets all zealous. Well, fine, if you're not going to just wash my feet, wash my head and my hand. And actually, you know, my nails probably need a little bit. of I bite them a lot, Jesus. Uh, Jesus says, no, what you need are your feet washed. You know, it's important that you and I, if we're going to wash the feet in our day and age, in our culture, that we are able to say no. I think sometimes the reason we don't get out of our car and walk over to the homeless person with a sign on the road is not because we don't have anything to give them, but because we don't have the backbone to say no when they ask for things we don't want to give them. And it's okay to say no sometimes. Martin Luther King Jr., in the height of uh, the civil rights movement, he wrote uh, in a sermon to his church about um, what it means to have a sharp mind and a soft heart. He says that if we are Christians and we have a weak mind and a soft heart, then we're going to be just run over all the time. And on the other hand, if we're Christians and we have a sharp mind and a hard heart, we are going to be the people running others over. But as Christ followers, you and I are called to have a sharp mind and a soft heart, to have a steel backbone and tender hands. And that means to identify other people's needs and fill them, not to wait for a need, but to look for a need. Jesus is practical. I think we also learn about capacity in this. Capacity is a question you should ask yourself. For some of you, you have the capacity to carry around $10 Chipotle cards in your, in your middle console and hand them out. Financially, you have the capacity. Do that. For others of you, you don't. But maybe you have time. Work in our food pantry. For others of you, you have empathy and emotional intelligence. Sit down and talk with someone. If you don't have empathy, don't try to serve someone by talking to them. Nobody wants that, okay? You little cyborgs who are like, what is your problem? How can I fix it? We don't want to fix. We want to feel, okay? But what is the capacity that you have and how can you, in an unprecedented, self-sacrificial way, serve others with it? So need, capacity, 
And then what we see Jesus doing is power. You know, Jesus re recognizes in that moment, and we'll see this in a moment, that he is the one in charge in this space. He's the teacher. He's the Lord. He has the authority. He is God incarnate. And he says, I will use my power and my influence to kneel down, to wash your feet, and to start a chain reaction throughout the world. Where in my kingdom it's clear that you're not great by who serves you, but who you serve. Jesus has power in this moment. Which means two things for us. It means that we use our power and our influence to serve and bless other people. And that can be at work, that can be in society, that can be in your home, that can be in your school, social clout, whatever. But it also means that we don't walk away with poor theology at this point. I've said this before, it's easy for us to have good theology for other people and bad theology for ourselves. We have clarity when we look at others. Jesus has power. He's not submitting because he's being misused or abused. This passage can be internalized somehow for us in a manner that we believe, well, it's loving to let this person mistreat me because they're my blood. What commentary did you read that in? We can misuse this scripture to think, well, uh, I can take a, sir, I, I, I can stomach the mistreatment. I, I can deal with the abuse. I can stick through it. That is not what Jesus is advocating in this. In fact, sometimes I think we moralize the things we don't want to do. Like I'm loving this person by letting them mistreat me. Maybe that's the backbone piece. And Jesus says, I'm the one with the power in this situation and I'm using it to serve other people. Now you have permission in power to serve others, not to submit power or to have power taking over you and forced to serve others. So Jesus is practical. He says, serve others. And then here's the one that really hurts. I hope it hurts, to be honest. John 13, 11. For he knew who was going to betray him. John wants you to know this. And that was why he said not everyone was clean. John wants you to be aware that Jesus is not unaware. It's not disciple roulette. And he's like, one of these guys is going to betray me. He knows who it is. And scripture doesn't say Jesus went about and when he'd finished Bartholomew's feet washing, he looked at Judas in the eyes and realized that he was not acting like a true bro. And therefore overlooked him and went on with Thaddeus. And no, 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 Jesus washes Judas' feet. It's unconditional. It's self-sacrificial, it's practical, but it's also unconditional. Now, a pause. It does not mean that we reconcile with an abuser, right? That's different. It doesn't mean we put ourselves back into an unsafe situation because it's unconditional. We still are practical, we're still using wisdom. But it is unconditional, meaning that. When your spouse is the last person on the planet, you want to wash their feet, and you have a valid reason. And I mean that. There are valid reasons. Jesus says, yes, reconcile where there's hurt. Address where there's wrongdoing. But wash your spouse's feet. When you resent your parent, and you can be, an, you can be a 40-year-old, and I'm talking to you, or a 50-year-old, or a 6-year-old, or whatever. If you resent your parent, and you have a right to resent your parent, you, or you have a right to not honor them because their actions have not been honorable. Jesus says, as best as you can find a way, wash their feet. 
When your boss loses your respect, Jesus says, wash their feet. You know, when the other person in the other ideological party than you, you fear that if I love them, if I show true kindness, they might misinterpret that as me actually affirming their beliefs and lifestyle. And I just don't want that. Jesus says, wash their feet. Be more concerned with them not knowing what I told you to do and you doing it than you affirming their beliefs and lifestyle, whatever side that might fall. And here's the last thing. For some of you, you need to hear this today. Our God is a God who washes the feet of traitors in his kingdom. And the reason that matters is because you and I, if you're a Christian, we are constant traitors. We're the Edwards of Chronicles of Narnia. We are saying, God, I give you my allegiance, and then I live another way all the time, myself included. And Jesus washes your feet too. The passage wraps with these words. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Listen to the two words he self-describes himself as. Do you understand what I have done for you, he asked? You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that's what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. We'll keep going to the next one. Very truly I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Jesus wraps this discourse off saying it's sacrificial, it's practical, it's unconditional. And he says, hey, I'm your teacher and your Lord. And this is an important paradigm for this culture because what Jesus is saying by teacher is that you want to be like me. This is not the teacher we think of, someone that signs a, a progress support and sends it home with you or calls your mom when you like put gum in someone's hair. This is the rabbi that you follow so closely. You've got his dust on your clothes because you want to become like him. And Jesus says, you can become like me. And I want you to do what I'm doing. I'm setting an example. You know that word example he uses in verse 15? It's translated just as easily in the Greek into the word pattern. Meaning this isn't a once in a lifetime. This isn't, oh man, Elliot gave a sermon last week. It was pretty good. I love, by the way, when people are like, you know, well, it was a good one. Yeah, I like it. And I, and I gave a Chipotle gift card to someone out, and I'm good. No, Joe. No offense to Joe. <laughs> this is a pattern. It's a way that we think. It's a way we live our life and swim in this world. And Jesus says, I'm the teacher. Come be like me. Some of you might uh, recognize these two faces. Uh, Princess D and Mother T. Let's see if we got a photo of these guys. I made that up yesterday on the way to work. Very proud of it. Princess D, Mother T. So uh, you might remember these figures. Princess Diana, Mother Teresa. What you might not remember is that these two global figures died on the same week in 1995, I think. What's interesting about both of them is that Mother Teresa, or Princess Diana, so many people wanted to be Princess Diana at that time. Her fashion, her fame, her beauty, 
But only one person could really be married to the Prince of Wales. On the other hand, nobody wanted to be Mother Teresa. We honored her. We thought highly of her. But no one wanted to be her, and yet anyone can be a Mother Teresa. It only takes submitting to the way of Jesus. Jesus says, I'm your teacher. And that means you can become like me. You can follow me. You can do this. The traitors in the audience, which is everyone sitting and standing, you too can become like me. But it's a choice that we have to make. So he says, I'm your teacher. And then he says, I'm your Lord. This is Jesus' way of saying, I'm, I'm the king. This is my kingdom. It's upside down. It's different. You're all in the precious metal line. You all get mimosas. He says, this is a different kingdom. I'm the Lord. And in a way, then he's saying, I have the authority to say, do this. Follow my example. But in another way, what he's saying is, as the Lord, as the king, who kneels down and washes Peter's feet, the guy who will, in just a few hours, say he doesn't know me, and Judas, who will kiss me on the cheek and get some money for it, and John, who will stand next to my mother at the cross, and all you other guys who will just disperse. He says, as the king who washes your feet, there's no reason that Waterstone or my disciples can't wash anyone else's feet. In other words, he says, there's no one that you are above washing their feet. I'm the teacher, come be like me, but I'm the Lord. I'm the king, and I'm washing your feet. So be self-sacrificial. Be practical. Have boundaries, a steel backbone, tender hands. Love unconditionally, and then follow Jesus. These are the things that he commands but this is not a false gospel, right? This is not the gospel of Instagram. Hashtag blessed baby. Just got a jet ski today. Comment below. This is not the Jesus wants to be your counselor. This is not the if you obey him and you give to the church, your anxiety and depression will go away. This is not the if you're kind to people and drive the speed limit, your marriage will just all of a sudden get so much better. Those are false gospels. This is the real gospel that you and I are called to. And praise God for it. But how in the world do we do this? It's a tall order. It is. We have to acknowledge that. Even imperfectly, how do we do this? Jesus says these words before he is betrayed. And before he goes to the cross. And the cross changes everything. Because while the foot washing is a powerful way that you and I can practically live this out, the cross is the epitome of the way that Christ lived this out for you and for me. And that changes us. You know, to the degree to which you understand Christ's love, that will be the degree to which you express it. There's, um, there's a story uh, uh, from 2015. Some of you remember this as well. 
of some Coptic Christians, so Christians in Egypt, who uh, were abroad in Libya. 21 men. One was from, uh, I think, Nigeria. The other 20 were from Egypt. And they're in Libya working, brothers and husbands, working to raise money to do repairs on houses back in a ghetto in Egypt, in a, a community of, a dense community of one demographic, Christians. And while they're there, it was during the time that ISIS was really rising, not just in um, uh, notoriety, you and I knew the name all of a sudden, but also in uh, their, their claim and territory. And they captured these 21 men, and you might remember this, there was a video that ISIS put online of all 21 of them being killed, being beheaded. And in the video, they used a derogatory term to describe these people, the people of the cross. Because by the way, what, how impressive is it that someone died that you follow on a cross? A lot of people died in Jesus' days on crosses. These are the people of the cross, and we'll kill them, and they did. This story of the 21 martyrs stirred the world. World leaders spoke out against it. And actually someone in the Springs, you might know Jim Daly, the head of uh, uh, Focus on the Family. Thank you. He, he felt so moved that he tells a story of in two hours he'd raised north of $200,000, almost three hundred, to send abroad to these families in Egypt to help complete the repairs that they had had their brothers and husbands abroad working to help with. And the best part of this story is not the, the fundraising. Jim Daly says it was supernatural. It was all of a sudden like the easiest fundraising I've ever done in my whole life. But beyond that is that once these families received all the funds to fix their houses, to complete projects, to have holes in the roof filled, they took the excess money and they asked the contractors to go across the street into a Muslim ghetto and to do repairs on houses without being asked. Sacrificially, practically, and unconditionally. And when those Muslim families came out of their house, shocked and surprised, they asked the contractors, who's paying for this? And the reply was, the people of the cross. You know, what does it look like to live and to love like Jesus? Let me be clear with us today, church. Too often we waste our breath arguing that red team or blue team reflects Jesus better. And sometimes we'll say, well, it's this in-between. It is not on this level. Yes, it plays out in practical. So if you're going there, fine. But it is a different way. Jesus' example to us was so sacrificial on that cross to us as traitors, as continual traitors in his kingdom that give allegiance and do something else that we as the people of the cross have to remember it and be inspired by it. You are the people of the cross. We are. Let us live like it. Amen? Today, we're going to take the Lord's Supper as we wrap because this is a sign that Jesus gave to us to say, this is how you remember what I've done. That you too might take part in it. That you too might become part of my kingdom. And so let's do that together. As we prepare our hearts and reflect, I'd encourage you to ask, 
where am I able to live like the people of the cross? Where am I able to foot wash and not doing it currently? How can I give sacrificial love to others? What are practical ways that I can do this? Where am I afraid to say no so I'm not ever saying yes? And where am I not doing this unconditionally? Let's take and remember the sacrifice Christ made for us. On the night Jesus was betrayed, the night he washed Judas's feet, Jesus took the bread and after he had given thanks, he said, this is my body given for you for the forgiveness of sins. Take and eat. In the same way, Jesus took the cup and he said, this cup represents the new covenant in my blood. Whenever you do this, do it in remembrance of me. Amen.